Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey. Today, I'll be talking to Jenny Shaw about her recent book, Everyday Life in the Early English Caribbean, Irish, Africans, and the Construction of Difference. Jenny, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, usually, we kind of like to start off just with a little bit of a, a brief biographical sketch, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about maybe how you came to this field and then how you came to this project. Okay, well, how I came to this field is actually, I think, maybe a little bit late in the day. Um, uh, I actually had never done anything um, in terms of colonial America's history until I was about halfway through uh, my undergraduate degree. Um, and as with many things, it was a great teacher who really set me um, alight thinking about um, issues of race and slavery, um, actually at that point, um, really in uh, colonial North America. Um And following that, I decided that I wanted to continue um, studying this in graduate school. And I moved from uh, the UK to the US uh, to study at NYU under Karen Kupperman um, in the Atlantic History program there. And that sort of started spreading my wings then beyond sort of the confines of North America and into other parts of the world. And the reason that I sort of started fixating on Barbados was that I actually I picked up a a book when um, I was at home in Belfast um, that was entitled To Hell or Barbados by um, a man called Sean O'Callaghan. And the article or the the book um, really talked about the fact that um, all of these Irish were supposedly in the Caribbean and in Virginia um, as slaves. And it made this very powerful argument. And it butted up against sort of everything that I had understood Um, about the status of Irish indentures in the Caribbean. And I more or less sort of thought, I want to know more about this because I don't think that this story is the one that is actually um, representative of what those experiences really were. And so that's where um, it began. Um, And that's when I started really delving into sort of these ideas about, so I sort of married, I guess, my ideas or interests in figuring out difference in the early modern period um, with um, a chance happening upon a book in a bookstore in Belfast um, uh, to leading me down this path to sort of centering um, the Irish uh, in the Caribbean in the 17th century. Well, those chance encounters are sometimes the best ones, yeah, I think. I, it leads you into these sort of passionate uh, paths. Um, well, let's get into this aspect. So you, you kind of um, preface it a little bit, but you have this this analysis on how kind of difference becomes thought about or how uh, the English in particular are structuring difference in the Caribbean. And I was sort of thinking, you, you, you referenced Nicholas Canny, and Nicholas Canny has this very famous article about uh, Ireland being sort of the, the training ground for colonization in Virginia. And I'm wondering if you see Ireland as also being maybe a training ground for constructions of difference, because, you know, that's really kind of your main area of, of uh, analysis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so to, to certainly a large degree in terms of how the English perceive it. Um, when they're constructing difference. I think that it's more than just Ireland. I think that they're also delving into stuff in the Mediterranean and and looking at North Africans um, and Muslims and other kinds of of individuals that do not fit maybe a precise um, English way of being. But I think most of their on-the-ground, face-to-face, up-close-and-personal experience um, comes in Ireland. And so I think for them very much what they're looking at in the Irish population, by the time you're getting to the period that, that I focus on in the book, is there's a sort of a dual um, understanding of what it means um, to look at the Irish as not being the same as English in this period. And part of that is the, I suppose, the indigenous inhabitants of Ireland, sometimes referred to as the Gaelic Irish or native Irish people, um, who are 
very othered by the English in terms of the fact that they are not viewed as being Christian, they are not viewed necessarily as even following Catholic traditions, um, and they're seen and used, talked about as being uncivil and barbarous in particular kinds of ways. But perhaps even more important, there is this other group of people, um, sort of the old English <laughs> or the relatively newer Irish, um, who um, settled um, in the Norman um, era in Ireland. And for the English, they're a really interesting group because they sort of have taken on what the English would see as some of the worst characteristics of the native Irish. Um, and they're almost doubly damned by the fact that they had once been good English um, people um, and now they are going more retrograde. So it's not even as easy as to say that the English look at Ireland as some sort of unified um, other place. They differentiate between people there. But I think that helps us understand then when they are faced with a multiplicity of peoples in the Americas, um, how they continue sort of to try and figure out where people belong um, in this particular hierarchy. From the Irish perspective, I'm not so sure that it fits quite back the other way, that this is their first time of really trying to figure out what's what's different in, in, in the period that I'm looking at. I imagine that came um, a little earlier uh, for them. But for the English, um, yes, I think it's. I think I would agree with Canny in that it's a fairly straightforward um, uh, training ground. Well, let's get into one of the major dividing issues, uh, and that is religion. And you sort of focus a lot about how Catholicism is such a major divide. Sure. Um, and, and so maybe kind of set the context in terms of uh, you know, you're looking more kind of in the, the early to mid 17th century for a lot of the book. Um, so at that point, you know, the uh, Protestantism had taken a pretty strong hold in England. Um, but as we're sort of learning about Jamestown, there maybe is some quasi-Catholic things going on, uh, even in this early empire. So uh, what what is Catholicism in the empire? Uh, what does it mean exactly, say, in the 1630s to the 1650s when you're kind of doing a lot of your research? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really great question because I think all of our assumptions about what Catholicism looks like starts to break down as soon as we start to actually try and look at religious practice um, on the ground. Um, and some of the things that I think um, are sort of most telling um, about sort of the Irish experience in this regard is that a lot of the practices that they are putting into place are not ones that I think um, certainly priests would necessarily look at and understand as being, um, you know, fully adhering um, to um, uh, the tenets of the Catholic faith. Um, for example, um, there's certainly evidence that um, Irish Catholics in both Ireland and I would argue um, in the Caribbean too, um, use certain practices that were certainly drawing on older um, religious pre-Christian um, kinds uh, of, of ways of being, um, which is of course not unusual in Europe at all at this time. I mean, they're right in the zone with everyone else who is doing um, these kinds of things. But what I think it does is that I think it means then that the English aren't even looking at what they're doing as being Catholic per se, um, but as being something outside of that. Um, and I think you see this especially um, when you get to um, uh, the sort of Cromwellian era um, and some of the particular sorts of the English um, so period of the English Civil War, when Irish um, Catholics are accused of some really sort of barbarous behavior, um, you know, of braining um, children and babies, of cannibalism, um, of sort of behaving in ways beyond the pale um, of even Catholics. Although in some cases, I think, the English like to use the blurring of Catholicism, um, transubstantiation and um, cannibalism a little bit to sort of make some of their points. Um, but I think what this means is that there is this much more sort of riven deciding sort of dividing line between the English um, and Irish Catholics 
um, when it comes to understanding and what they are doing um, in their everyday lives. And although it's difficult to see it in the Caribbean, and we do get information from various priests who are who are in those islands, um, who are looking, of course, always with an eye to wanting to find Catholicism wherever they can. But they do give us a, a sort of strong sense that people are looking um, to find priests, to baptize them, to marry them, uh, to perform uh, funeral rites. But that when priests aren't there, they are still managing to get by in that way themselves. And sometimes I think they do that by not um, doing anything official with the church and taking care of it themselves or using lay preachers to perform those kinds of rituals where they need them. But other times it's also clear to me that there are certain Irish who will happily go to the Church of England to sort of have various parts um, of their lives sanctified in particular kinds of ways. Um, there are Irish who are buried in Church of England um, burial grounds um, in uh, Barbados who were clearly Catholic from the records. And they show up occasionally in baptism records too, slightly less commonly there. But you can sort of see that for them too, these lines are not maybe quite so strongly drawn as we might see because they see, I think, religion on more of a spectrum than perhaps um, scholars going back and looking and trying to identify, yes, this is Protestant behavior, this is Catholic behavior, this is behavior outside of either of those two things and has to be classified as something else. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that emphasis on practice is really important in part because, and maybe I'm thinking about uh, an old and, and no longer useful um, historiography on this topic, but but you really sort of show how important religion is in the Caribbean in a way that I think a lot of scholars still don't want to acknowledge that this is a sort of vital part of their lives. Um, it, did you see that sort of in the records that, that, that this was something that was very intense for many of the servants that came over and, and maybe even for those that ended up buying land and purchasing slaves? Um, um, Yes, is the short answer. Um, it's Again, it's sort of a difficult thing um, to identify um, in um, very significant ways. But one thing that I did is I spent a lot of time looking at um, the wills for Barbados um, and looking at how people designated executors um, in those wills um, and the kinds of um, uh, requests that they would make either about where to be buried or about who would be in charge um, of their estate after they passed And there were certainly quite a lot of things that lined up when it came to sort of um, to Irish practices in general, which is women were much more often listed as executors than they are when you take a similar sample of just general kinds of wills. Um, There was a much higher incidence of asking to be buried in their gardens. um, So not actually in consecrated ground anywhere because there's no Catholic ground to be be buried in at that period um, in Barbados. Um, And you also see um, uh, a lot of, um, I suppose the way, best way to put it is a lot of things not said. So there would not be a big description of what they wanted the burial to look like, but they essentially said, my wife will take care of it. Um, and certainly in Ireland, the rules um, of women and children, particularly um, in burial, um, were extremely important. And so you can sort of see that they're trying to sort of create these kinds of links. Some of the more elite people um, in Barbados and Montserrat left money to um uh, Catholic diocese back in Ireland and to particular parishes, to churches. Some of them left money for the poor in um, uh, the islands themselves, um, very much sort of following up on those traditions. But even when we don't have an overwhelming preponderance of evidence, there are still these snippets here and there where you can really see that, for example, when the governor of Montserrat, um, uh, Stapleton, uh, he's, he's writing um, back and, and really not, he's Catholic himself. <laughs> And he does not write a lot about what is going on on that island. I think his silence speaks volumes. 
um, because he's trying at all times to paint his majority Catholic colonists as good subjects uh, to the crown. So he is certainly minimizing various events. But if you look at certain things that he says and that some of the priests on the island say, um, you see that there are these religious processions taking place um, or that there are certain people who are being buried um, with a lot of pomp and circumstance and that the Catholic Church um, is certainly part of that. Uh, At one point, Stapleton writes back and explains that basically everyone's using the Church of England for all of their official documentation. And that otherwise all religious practices are going on just fine. And he doesn't really elaborate, but you know that he's essentially sort of saying, look, we're towing the line here, but then there's all of this other stuff that's happening. I think even more than beyond that is that um, once you start to sort of expand out into the servant kind of world where it's much more difficult to try and get a sense of what they're doing. And one of the things that I was interested in um, exploring in this book, um, despite wanting always to hold that line between what it meant to be a servant and what it meant to be a slave. I don't really have any interest in conflating those status points, Um, but was looking at what does it mean if you are laboring on a sugar plantation alongside a lot of people um, from um, Africa who are also trying to find their way in this world, what points of commonality or divergence do you have? And consistently, I find that when you looked at religious practices and and burial really is one that I focus on a lot simply because that's the one that people tended to talk about more than anything else that you can really see um, just how significant um, these kinds of religious rituals were to everyday life it's a way of keeping yourself centered um, when you don't have control over anything else and inconsistently either because of observers talking about it because of um, in some cases um death records, um, in other cases, um, governors writing back um, about practices that are occurring um, on the island or concerns that they have, you see that religion really is informing um, everyone's worldview, but just as much those on the lower end um, of the hierarchy um, as those at the very top. It's hard to get at, but if you put the pieces together, I think you can't deny that it's important. And I think increasingly people are agreeing that yes, the Caribbean is a site where religion mattered. Um, I think people have always given more credence, of course, to that in the case of say, the Spanish Caribbean. Um, but I think um, increasingly scholars are starting to overturn that. But I don't think the, the turn has actually been made yet. I think we're in the process of sort of overturning um, that. So when people are lecturing in Caribbean history classes, that that's the vision that they're giving if they're talking about, say, the English Caribbean. Um, as opposed to one that's all about profit, profit, profit um, all the time. Well, you're adding part of your own torque to that turn. I yes. hope. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the other group in the subheading that you, you sort of referenced. And this is maybe even more difficult to kind of get at their religious experience. But for the enslaved Africans that are coming over, um, you sort of mentioned that the Catholicism is not foreign to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think you, you make some strong efforts to sort of get at what their religious experience is like. And so how... How much can we tell about what the enslaved population was was doing in terms of their practices? Yeah, I mean, as with um, also the sort of indentured kind of Irish um, and other lower orders, you know, nearly everything is filtered through the prism of these elite sources. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that by putting together some of that material alongside archaeological and other kinds of material, I mean, Jerry Handler's done a lot of work um, on religious practices in Barbados um, among um, enslaved Africans. If you look at what people like John Thornton and others have done um, for Africa itself, West Africa and Central Africa, 
um, in terms of understanding the kinds of practices that people may have been bringing with them, um, I think you can start to sort of at least suggest um, some of what is happening on plantations. Certainly a lot of early observers, I mean, Richard Lincoln's probably the most um, famous of these, spend a lot of time talking about what they're looking at on plantations. Again, very often focusing um, on death rituals, not only, but um, that tends, tends to be sort of where the focus comes in. Um, and you can see um, sort of the commonalities between what enslaved Africans are doing and what at least some indentures um, may be doing when it comes to sort of those kinds of rights. But what I find perhaps even more interesting than the simple um, sort of in, in some ways figuring out kind of what they were doing religiously in terms of different kinds of African religious practices was easier than trying to figure out the answer to the question of what does it mean that certain numbers of them um, uh, were baptized. So one of the things that I look at in the book are those free um, and enslaved people of color who um, become admitted to the Church of England. And it's a difficult thing to get at in lots of ways. In some cases, it seems almost definite that it's the master that is sort of engineering um, this moment. But at other times, it's, it's really um, quite unclear um, and in some cases, actually the opposite. So in some cases, you can really see um, individuals who are trying to have their children baptized, I think, to um, try and cement their status um, as potentially free people. Because although the records are frustratingly um, uh, unclear in terms of free or enslaved status, um, when you can tell uh, whether someone is or is, is a free person of color, you can see, for example, there are certain um, families like the Cuffies uh, who baptize their children um, after they are born. Um, and then actually after the fact, they themselves are baptized. Um, and I think it's because whether or not the English authorities had any sense that they wanted to draw a direct line between Christianity and freedom, um, enslaved Africans did, or some of them did at least, uh, in terms of wanting to sort of push that fact. Now, in Barbados, towards the end of the 17th century, um, the council is actually discussing the fact specifically that baptism will not lead to freedom. And they're very clear on that. So Barbados is not a place where there is a lot of proselytizing to slaves. For the most part, there are certain groups who do it, like the Quakers and so on. But for the most part in the 17th century, the idea that you want to convert your slaves is not really high on, in anyone's um, register. So the numbers are relatively small for those who are baptized. Um, and as I said, there's this prohibition or this sort of decision that Christianity will not lead to um, freedom. However, I think you can see it consistently enough, particularly among those families that are free or who become free. Um, Cuffey actually starts out, I believe, as an enslaved person. He gains his freedom. He marries a woman um, of indeterminate status, um, but who I believe becomes free, either is or becomes free. And then their children are all baptized. Um, and, and so are they. And I think he was probably trying to um, get insurance <laughs> that if I am a good Christian subject, then um, maybe my freedom will be allowed to stand. Um, I also think it's interesting that earlier in the in the century um, or mid-century, um, one of the things that the English um, do pass is this idea that if an enslaved person um, essentially um, shops. <laughs> Uh, those who may be plotting revolts uh, to the authorities, um, that they will be given certain kinds of comforts as a result and that they will be given a red cross, the badge of a red cross to wear on their arm to signify sort of their 
um, allegiance, I suppose. I mean, the Red Cross of St. George is part of that, but I, it's a cross in lots of different ways. It, it works across a number of different categories, including that of Christianity. Um, and so that's an earlier moment that later I think the authorities want to step back from. But that knowledge that there is maybe some kind of connection there, I think, is certainly alive in the enslaved community. And so it's not just about keeping whatever practices they may have brought from Africa. Many of them, most of them, the vast majority did that. But some of them chose a different path to try and sort of a different sort of religious path in order to try and uh, cement their freedom, I think. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get into maybe uh, some of the more direct parts of your argument too, uh, to kind of combine those ideas about religion and maybe the different groups in uh, in the Caribbean. Um, so what are the interactions like between a lot of these servants who are coming from Ireland and, say, enslaved Africans? Um, and, and, you know, you're really tracing a kind of a change over time story. And we'll kind of get at how this transforms. But kind of in the early days, maybe even kind of later into the 17th century, do you see a tremendous amount of interaction? Because as you kind of mentioned, uh, those categories of difference are very uh, difficult to pin down in the early years. Yeah, um, it really is a change over time story. Um, although the collusion, potential collusion, or at least feared collusion on the part of English authorities about how enslaved Africans and Irish indentures might work together is fairly consistent across the period. Um, for example, in the 1650s, when there um, are certain kinds of, um, a certain amount of tumult and so on on Barbados, um, the governor really talks about wanting to prevent, you know, the Irish and Negroes who are out in the thickets um, from getting together and sort of conspiring with each other. Now, how much of that is real and how much of that is English anxiety is something that needs to be parsed. Um, but we do see at different moments between sort of that moment um, and the 1690s um, collusion um, between Irish and Africans, or at least alleged collusion, and most famously probably in the 1692 slave revolt, um, which was supposedly organized by island-born slaves um, who were going to use um, Irish... <laughs> Uh, workers uh, to go into um, basically the forts and get the soldiers drunk so that the arms could be um, taken by the slaves. Now, this revolt doesn't come to pass. The question, again, is how real or imagined was it? But the point I would make is that whether or not this was planned in the ways that it came out in the testimony, which, of course, was taken under torture, um, the enslaved people who gave that testimony knew what to say in order to really sort of... um, uh, uh, cause anxiety um, among those who are interrogating them. Um, outside of these bigger flashpoint moments where you can see sort of references to um, Irish interactions and so on, um, there's what happens every day on the plantation. And again, this is difficult to sort of get at exactly what's going on. But one of the things that I do is I try and look at sort of various forms of labor, various forms of, of, of living, the kinds of food that they were eating and how they might have um, taken those differently or had commonality. And as I said earlier, I do not want to push the um, they all got along together and, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and um, sort of uh, that kind of, of narrative, because I think it's far more complicated than that. Um, But what I think is really interesting about focusing on those things is that I think it allows us to start to get at how Africans from different parts of West and West Central Africa and Irish also were part of this sort of idea of trying to figure out, you know, who's who's together and who's separate. What is difference for us? um, Who belongs with us and who does not? And I think by looking at these individual things, we can see um, different um, sort of fissures. Uh, One of the one of my favorite um, one of the favorite uh, sources that I found was um, a report about sort of Irish enslaved interacting in the fields. Um, and 
the discussion that essentially that the that the slaves referred to the, the Irish as white Negroes, um, and that they were sort of going to be, uh, which is, I think, where some of this idea that they were treated just as slaves comes from. But it's more complex than that. I think there's a lot of different ways to read that from um, it being entirely disingenuous insofar as to say, yes, they're really not like us, to it being a sort of joking among laborers, to it um, uh, being some sort of statement of, yeah, I mean, they do kind of treat them about as badly as they treat us. I mean, I think there's a spectrum there. But what I think is really interesting about it is that it demonstrates that they, they have knowledge of each other. And they understand the dynamics, of course, of what was going on because they are living it. Um, and so one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book was not just presume that because the English create the majority of the sources and create the majority of the um, sort of categories, um, be they through statutes or through the census um, in which people fall, um, but was to ask what does this look like on the receiving end and how, more importantly, how do those on the receiving end turn that around um, and how are they grappling with these very same issues, even if they're less visible to us? And one way to get at that for me was looking at these everyday kinds of moments. Are there religious commonalities and separations and what do those tell us? Um, how does the food that they eat um, and the work that they do um, and the places that they live, um, how do those different um, spaces um, and um, moments, how can they tell us about how these people saw themselves as being similar or in other cases as being very different from each other? And we can see that too. Um, and to sort of get at your at sort of the change over time point, um, I think probably the most important thing to say is that for certain Irish, they started in a position where they may have seen those commonalities much more closely, but they end the 17th century in a position of power owning slaves um, themselves. Um, so they have definitely transitioned from a place where they may have found um, more commonalities to one where either they've decided that those commonalities don't exist or that there are more important things than looking to any kind um, of common ground that they might find with enslaved Africans. And that aspect of land ownership and slavery is so central to that. Yes. Uh, those societies that, of course, if, if that's going to be the thing that everyone aspires to, you will start to create those divisions yes. based on land ownership. But I, I, one of the things I also really like is that you um, you kind of look at how enumeration becomes a really important part of the Caribbean. And and I wonder if you could sort of say why counting is important in the Caribbean, uh, why demography makes anyone uh, you know stand up at night and worry about what's going to happen to the future, and then what that does to, to how, say, the rulers at least start to differentiate between people. Yeah, I mean, I think that so the early modern period is this period of, of, of counting and enumeration. Um, and I find it fascinating. Um, I didn't think that statistics and looking at censuses would ever be something that would get me really fired up. Um, but it's been one of the sort of the happy surprises uh, of, this, sub, of this, this project was that I became intimately familiar um, with the various censuses in Barbados, but I also went back and looked at the antecedents of those kinds of things um, with William Petty in particular, who's sort of the uh, father, I suppose, of political arithmetic um, when it comes to figuring out counting. And I think what you see through counting is counting becomes important because if you know who you have um, under your governance, if you know who your subjects are, then you can work to categorize them. And I think the idea becomes quite quickly, put them to the best possible use depending on what their perceived strengths or weaknesses may be. Um, it also allows you to decide how to um, structure uh, your society in terms of making sure that certain people um, are under particular kinds of control. And in the 17th century, you see this sort of explosion of enumeration. But early on, and actually I think you could argue later too, 
this notion that we know who we have is more important than any kind of accuracy about who we really have. So you see a lot of, I mean, again, Richard Liggins is one of the more famous ones, but the, you know, the true and exact history, you know, I will give you an exact number of the people. And then they just ballpark, they guesstimate, you know, what they have in front of them. Um, but it is to give the illusion um, back to certainly the colonial masters back in London, that they know exactly who they have and that they are doing a good job of managing these colonies very far away. They're becoming increasingly lucrative um, to um, the English empire. And I think what's so fascinating about all of that is that they seem to think that if we can just write it all down and enumerate it, then we can control it. Then we can manage it. Then we can make it as productive as possible. There's also a way in which by categorizing people, you can look to the ways to improve them. So you see a lot of improving language in the same sources that are documenting the actual numbers. And so um, you know, the Scots quickly become the nerves and sinews of the plantation, right? They are talked about really quite positively um, in these documents. The Irish, on the other hand, it is a lot less clear as to whether they are improvable at all. And so they fall into this sort of in-between category where can we actually make them good English subjects, essentially, or can we not? And that's where sort of their potential barbarism and their um, Catholicism and, and these other kinds of um, more cultural kinds of meanings come in. And then you have Africans who are seen as this powerful workforce, but are never really viewed as improvable in any kind of way. They are not talked about in that same kind of zone. And so what begins as this kind of let me tell you the numbers and then let me tell you what each of those groups does. And then let me tell you about how we might make some of those groups perform better. By the time you get to the end of the 17th century, um, it's becoming this much more specific enumeration. Um, and this is where you know, I think things become really interesting in terms of being able to see very specifically what the English are doing when it comes to categorization. Because the Barbados census of 1680 and the Leeward Island census of a couple of years before are very interesting in terms of their categories, in terms of the fact that essentially they don't want to count anyone who doesn't fall into neat categories of black or white, or basically landowner or not landowner, and not landowner should really mean enslaved in these scenarios. So people of mixed race, entirely absent. Um, either they're marked in the category Negro, um, because that's where they would be put, or they're not counted um, at all. Um, in many of the censuses, women and children are not enumerated out across household, but are just lumped by parish at the end. So you can sort of see kind of where they matter or don't in this imagining. Essentially, what particularly Barbados' census shows is that here's how many white men we need to have in the militia in order to control this vast enslaved population. Um, on the islands. And they have rules, right? We need at least one white person for every 10 enslaved people. And what they mean is one white man who can <laughs> take up arms um, and control this. And so you get this um, almost, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's ugly in so many ways, but it has a certain um, sort of beauty of division where you have these documents that are going back to London that are just page after page after page of very neat enumeration. Um, how do you argue with numbers, right? You can't, how do you argue with the numbers? You can't argue with the numbers. Um, as though that is telling London something very specific about what this population looks like. And actually it tells London really nothing about what that population looks like in, in some ways, right? It doesn't, um, for example, in the, in the Leewards Islands, they do allow for the category Irish. Um, but again, here, um, uh, 
you know, that's sort of, I think, a, a way of sort of acknowledging that, yes, there are sizable numbers here. There's no Irish category on Barbados, even though they're still a large part of the population. So presumably, those men are still being, are being counted as white. And in fact, one Irish man sort of, if I have a protagonist, I suppose it is him, Cornelius Bryan, um, is in the 1680 census, marked as the landowner he has become with his land and his slaves. Um, and he's also listed... Um, uh, later on in the um, in the militia regiment, he, pro- he provides a horse. Um, that's one of the things that Cornelius Bryan um, provides uh, towards the militia. So, um, so that's how he's categorized. And if you didn't know <laughs> that he was Irish, there would be no way to tell looking at that Barbados census. So a huge part of him, his background is just disappeared. I think intentionally by those taking the census, they don't want to muddy the waters they can't exactly ignore it in the Leeward Islands because the numbers are so large. But even there, they're demonstrating these are landowners who are not causing us problems. And I just find the whole thing completely fascinating as a projected idea of what colonialism should be, even though it masks everything um, that colonialism really is um, in terms of on the ground interaction. It's a very, very good um, articulation of English ideas about it, but it doesn't really tell you about relationships at all. Do you think, just so we're going to start to wrap up here in a few minutes, but do you think that that, that enumeration and that sort of maybe top-down perspective um, ultimately by the 18th century does have an effect on the way those categories are lived? I mean, so, you know, it's hard to really get at what was actually happening mm-hmm. in terms of people's perspectives towards people of mixed race or, you know, are the Irish in this wholly separate category. Yeah. But but do you see that, you know, because you are trying to char- chart how these differences become more mm-hmm. uh, concrete or reified, by the 18th century, do you think that ultimately those those imperial perspectives have kind of ground that spectrum down to a more essentialized form of categories? I think it's certainly heading that way. Um, for example, um, later on, there's a there's a census of um, Montserrat um, in the um, in the uh, 18th century where um, ethnic categories just disappear, and it is all white and black. Now they have a very detailed enumeration. They are intense in the i mean they have i think it's up to like 30 categories of things that are being counted in that census not just of people but of everything that is on the plantations and, and all the rest of it um but that so there you do see where somewhere where they used to allow for a little more nuance but that nuance um is gone um i think that i mean it's very it would be i think nice for scholars to be able to say that yes that's exactly <laughs> how it plays out that we can see we know that racial divides get seem to become increasingly reified and hardened as we move through the 18th century so wouldn't it be nice if all of this lined up i think again though um i would maybe turn it back around and ask what it is that individuals are doing certainly in terms of what the category of white means and to um move towards that and i do think that partly the creation of the category itself obviously means that people are going to be deciding whether someone is in or out of it. But um, again, I think of someone like Cornelius Bryan, uh, who begins his, at least begins his archival journey for me, and as best as I can tell, begins his archival journey in the 1650s in Barbados. And he's hauled in front of the council for slander. Uh, He basically um, says, um, he's been heard to say that if there was as much English blood on the plate that he's eating from as there was meat, he would gladly drink it all up. Um, and so he's he's one of many Irish who are hauled in front of the council. He's the only one whose words are sort of written down or ventriloquized uh, for him. And he's sentenced to 21 lashes on the bare back um, at the Indian Bridge, so in Bridgetown. Uh, and he's told to get off the island. Like he's accused of potentially raising a mutiny. And 
uh, he has a certain amount of time to leave. And most scholars have left him there because I mean, it's a great story and it works really well. Um, and looking through um, the Lucas manuscripts, I discovered that basically a month later, he asked to be allowed to stay. And they say, OK, as long as you're on your best behavior. And somehow from there, at that point on, looking through the deeds and so on, you see him acquire this land. Um, uh, he marries someone who may have been English, but probably was Irish too, and seems to rise up uh, the ranks. He is a modest planter. Um, he has 13 enslaved people by the time that he dies and about 20 acres of land. So he's not a huge planter, but he talks in his will about his mansion house. <laughs> and he's certainly styling himself in this, in this particular way. That same will leaves his burial to his wife um, and does many of the things that I, I talked about um, earlier. But what I look at when I see someone like Cornelius Bryan is someone who essentially decided that at a certain point that it was more strategic for him, that it was better for him to sort of um, leave aside this more sort of rebellious, very stereotypically perfidious Irish papist, right? That he's this um, Irish guy who's a problem um, and quietly go about the business of making himself in the mold of an English planter. He may be Irish, that's, that's the difference. Um, but he's become this thing. And I think that the, the fact that those categories exist allow him to move into that. But I also think it's not just about the categories existing, sort of creating the divide. I think it's about people actively choosing to embrace um, those categories. And we see this not just with him, but with others. If they acquired land, acquired slaves and minimized whatever their Catholic faith was, um, the English were happy to turn um, the other way, as they did. Um, during um, the Glorious Revolution, when there was a huge um, uh, threat of uh, the Catholics, um, or Montserrat in particular, rising up. And Christopher Codrington, who is no lover of the Irish, basically makes the pragmatic decision to tell them, you are better off under us. We will protect your property. We will allow you to basically go about your business if you remain loyal. If you do not throw in your lot with the French immediately, as has happened many times in the past, we will do right by you. Um, and not only does he make that offer, <laughs> but that offer appears to be accepted in this in this scenario. Um, and those people are, are choosing that. They are understanding that, again, the sort of connection of land and property um, and a particular way of living um, is a way to get by. Whatever they're doing privately is one thing, but on the public face of it, they are now good, quote unquote, English subjects. Um, and I think that that's part of choosing that. Whereas there are others, if you look in the same decade, 1690s, there are other Irish that are still causing consternation and problems and siding with potentially inciting with enslaved Africans um, in uprisings in Barbados um, and getting themselves into all kinds of trouble um, on Montserrat. So the groups decide differently. Um, uh, and I think ultimately actually what happens in the case of the Caribbean is that that group of free laborers who are um, white just essentially disappears to the, to the point that, that they just don't really exist as a category at all. And so white does mean planter. At a certain point, um, and then black mostly means enslaved at a certain point too. One of the things, just to kind of close up, you end each section with a little vignette, kind of a literary explication of, of two of the main characters, I guess, in the book. One of whom is Cornelius Bryant, and um, I, I thought that was a really interesting way of, of kind of stepping away from this analytical framework and trying to get at what the actual individuals themselves were feeling or experiencing, and it's grounded in the, the sources that you found, but I think you take this sort of literary, maybe slightly speculative aspect to it. And I wonder what you thought that that kind of added to your analysis that you weren't able to get through just kind of in the more traditional way of writing. 
It's a really good question because actually the decision to do that is something that I've, I think, questioned every day since I finished the book. Um, oh, no, I really enjoyed it. No, not because I think that, um, that it, it didn't serve a purpose. Um, because I think to ask, ask your, answer your question more specifically, what I was hoping to do was essentially to try and put the methodology of sort of looking at the everyday um, and really sort of listening for silence and reading into the gaps um, into practice. And the way that I felt I could do that was basically through historical fiction. Um, and I wanted to particularly demonstrate, um, I think, for the reader, maybe a little more clearly, um, how it, how these things were viewed from different vantage points. So as you say, Cornelius Bryan is one of the people that I look at. Um, I then also have um, Peg and Old Peg are the other two sort of interlocutors who were both enslaved or slaves of, of Cornelius Bryan. I posit that they were likely a mother and daughter, although I don't know that that's the case. And um, what I felt it allowed me to do, particularly for the enslaved women, was to shed a little bit of light on how they may have experienced some of what was happening when I don't have, I have a lot of fragments, but I don't have, you know, enslaved people in their own words ever and occasionally ventriloquized by um, a white actor. And so in the case, for example, to talk about the census stuff, I think in that vignette, what I essentially discuss um, is um, sort of the church warden showing up Cornelius Bryan tells him what he has and and all the rest of it. And, and I think I have old peg there who's you know serving him something to drink while he's having these conversations. Um, and I have her reflect on the fact that he hasn't really asked any questions that told him anything about what relationships were really like on the plantation. Um, because I have to, I, I find it impossible to believe given the scale of that operation that everyone on Barbados was not intimately aware of what was happening and how that, how that information was being gathered. Um, church wardens were going plantation by plantation. That's a small island. There's no way people don't know. And so I wanted an opportunity to be able to talk about how that might have looked like from um, the labourers' perspectives um, in the absence of any kind of information at all about how they may have, have seen that. As I said, I've been thinking about the process of doing that. In some ways, one of the things I wanted to do was to try and um, give a voice, I suppose, where there is where there's really not a strong one at all. Um, in the records themselves. But in doing so, I'm making choices. So I'm talking for them. And that's the question that I come back to is, is that as damaging as not talking for them at all? And I don't have a good answer to it. I don't regret putting it in the book because I think it's a good conversation point. And I hope that um, people, um, whether they like it or not, can at least grapple with the question of of what's appropriate or not when we're um, writing history. but at the same time, I have that same conversation in, in my head. And on any given day, I can go back and forth on whether I think that it was um, an appropriate way of trying to engage those questions um, or whether um, I should have just let the silence uh, speak um, in trying to sort of flip a little bit um, uh, of what was going on. I begin every chapter, every, the title of every chapter comes from a colonial official source or the the the, the before the colon part of the title, but every chapter ends with this um, imagined uh, literary um, uh, vignette about um, Cornelius Pegg and Old Pegg. And that was, a, that was intentionally a balance as well. I wanted to force readers, I think, to sort of think about how the archives constructed and what kinds of stories we can and can't tell. And I was as determined as I could be to not just leave it at a certain point and say, well, we can't say that. Um, at the same time, I have now said something that I have no idea if um, 
uh, peg or old peg uh, would have uh, any recognition of themselves in that because um, I'm writing from such a different perspective from the one that they experienced. And Cornelius Bryan too. I mean, any of... Well, and anyone we write about, right? right? I mean, we have those, we make those choices all the time. Yes, we do. And so the choice of how to do this and how to present things is one, as you say, we do make absolutely all the time. The question of whether to really fictionalize someone's life, I think, um, was one that I, I still question in terms of whether or not it's appropriate to try and speak for people who really left nothing um, at all. No, I understand. Yeah. Um, so just, we'll kind of wrap up. Uh, you have a new project that you're working on now that you have this book uh, in the press and uh, it was published a couple of years ago, but I think it's still, uh, still really kind of pushing some new boundaries in terms of religion. Are you going to go in that same vein or, or a new idea? Um, at, the altogether? Mo- at the moment, um, I am actually, I'm starting from something that as often happens came out of the first book when I was looking at baptism records in Barbados, I discovered um, nine children all baptized on the same day. Uh to three different three different women, two of whom were enslaved. The father of all nine was one of the most prominent planters on the island. Um, and I was curious about that particular configuration. Um, uh, so this planter is called John Piers. Um, he had about a thousand acres and 180 slaves in Christchurch Parish. Um, and so at the moment, what I've been trying to do is think about um, these women um, and their children on this plantation that was overwhelmingly, um, I think he had eight servants and 180 enslaved Africans, most of which had come directly from West Africa. So part of what I've been doing is thinking about the dynamics of that. Um, This plantation is clearly a very African or whatever that means, sort of a West African kind of space. Um, And these women are, um, I think an easy way of writing their stories would be to suggest that their experience um, is very much along the creolizing kind of path and that they were using this relationship in a particular way, which I hold open as a possibility at least but I'm also just curious about what the other side that we don't see from the records as explicitly looks like in terms of their everyday interactions on the plantation but I've also been doing a lot of tracing of this uh, family and um, some of the um, enslaved children are provided for in his will although at least on the face of it in the will not freed Um, but they become free um, and they go to London um, and so at the moment, we're, I'm sort of following every lead that I can find <laughs> and um, it's growing all the time. But the connections that I'm seeing um, are really um, powerful. And I think what you can you can see between um, the he has two wives who are English. The second one was daughter of Governor Jonathan Atkins. Um, this guy was in the council and is married to the, into the Waldron family, which is a big Barbados family in this period. Um, and. Uh, then he has this um, servant woman, Dorothy Spendlove, who is one of the women with whom he has three children. And then there's an enslaved woman, Susanna, and another enslaved woman, Elizabeth, with whom he has another three, at least three children each. Um, tracing that out, um, what I'm hoping to do is really think about um, how we understand family um, in this period um, and what that means. But also to try and sort of do a sort of broadly Atlantic project that stretches back to West Africa, that goes to London. Um, that spends time in the Caribbean. It seems he also had land in Jamaica. So I'm in the relatively early stages. Um, perhaps most surprisingly of all, of all is the fact that this huge, big planter actually has remarkably small of a paper trail himself. Um, I thought when I hit on this that I'd finally hit someone who was going to just, you know, there's going to be tons of material on him. Um, and so far, at least, he's proved to be almost as elusive as his enslaved <laughs> property, which I find 
really fascinating in, in and of itself in terms of methodologically um, how to play with that. Oh, that sounds terrific. I can't wait to, to read more about that. So, um, but thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to join us today. Thank you. It was great. I had a lot of fun. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks.